It's the 7th of March, 2015, and this is episode 193. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts. Just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Welcome to a special episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. My name is Stephanie Murphy, and I'm one of the hosts here at LTB. As we near 200 episodes of the show, we're taking a look back to where it all began. This episode features six different selections plucked from the very first five episodes of the show, originally released back in April of 2013. Today's episode almost didn't happen. Adam has the flu, and so the show might have taken a week off if it weren't for a group of listeners who decided that they not only wanted a clip show, but they were going to step up to pick the pieces. Special thanks to Devin, Thomas, David, Daniel, and Rob. Oh, and by the way, Adam, we hope you feel better soon. Thanks. Settle in as we travel back to April 23rd, 2013 for our very first segment from episode one, Why Can't I Buy Bitcoin With My Credit Card? Enjoy the show. From the listener mailbag, we had an interesting question. Quote, why hasn't any company taken the risk of allowing users to buy Bitcoin via debit or credit cards? I understand the whole chargeback thing, but I would at least think someone would have tried it by now or come up with a more foolproof way of doing it. Obviously, whoever figures this one out is in line to make some serious cash. What do you think, Andreas? Why hasn't this been tried? With great rewards comes great risk. And uh, the listener is right in saying that there's some serious cash involved here, but there's also a very serious risk. And it's not just chargeback risk. So if you if you look at uh, the interface between Bitcoin and uh, national currency, that's where most of the difficulties arise. And it really shines a, a spotlight on the weaknesses of, of traditional currency systems and payment systems. So chargeback risk, what, what is that? Well, if you receive money from uh, PayPal or credit card or any of the other traditional payment systems, you don't actually get the money. What you get is a tentative promise that you will get the money over a period of time. And during that time, the sender can reverse that transaction. That applies to ACH transactions under the NACHA rules. It applies to credit card transactions under the Visa MasterCard rules. And it also applies to wire transfers, surprisingly. So there are lots of ways how a sender can reverse a transaction and basically leave you holding the bag. On the other side, you're giving out Bitcoin. Bitcoin is irreversible and guaranteed. The moment you have six confirmations and honestly, quite a bit before then, because it's difficult to do a double spend even with zero confirmations, that money's gone. So if you're a merchant taking in uncertain money on one end and giving out certain money on the other end, you're exposing yourself to a lot of risk. Then you've got the possibility of your account being frozen or closed uh, on the US uh, side or the national currency side, as happened to BitFloor, as we just discussed. And of course, then when you open the window between the initial charge that you take in and the actual payment of Bitcoin, it's about a seven to 10 business day window. That means you receive the money and you're not guaranteed to hold it for at least seven days. So you have to wait. During that time, the price of Bitcoin may change dramatically. If you assign the price of Bitcoin based on the first day, uh, you swallow all the risk of the Bitcoin you've purchased. If you don't, you have to purchase Bitcoin in advance and uh, keep stock of Bitcoin. That causes other problems. And generally, it exposes you to a lot of fluctuation. Then your Visa, PayPal, MasterCard or other merchant account may be closed. And those rules are pretty arbitrary and capricious too. They may decide that what you're doing is against the terms of service, shut you down. And really, you have very little recourse to get your account back. 
a lot of this is really driven by the anti-money laundering regulations we just talked about. And uh, of course, that exposes you to even more risk because if you're under investigation for any of these anti-money laundering regulations, almost immediately one of the first things that happens is your accounts get frozen, which then leaves you uh, holding enormous liabilities to your customers and a bunch of money you can't touch. And if that's not enough, if you really do become successful at this endeavor, you're going to have a lot of money coming in and a lot of money going out, an enormous volume of cash flowing through your organization. The tiniest hiccup on either the inputs or the outputs will leave you with either a very large amount of money flowing in or will leave you with a very large deficit because the money isn't flowing in when you need it. So all of these things make it very complex, very risky uh, from an operational perspective, a legal perspective and a financial perspective. Yeah, I really appreciate your perspective on that, Andreas, because I actually had the same question and why nobody has started doing this yet. But that makes a lot of sense about <laughs> the just enormous amount of risk involved. It does sound like just as we were talking about a little bit earlier in the show, somebody would have to be already a pretty large entity with a lot of lawyers on their side to undertake this. And so far, we haven't seen anybody step up who's got the power. In this next segment, we talk about banks and the non-existent incentive to innovate. Do you think that we'll reach a point where we can see real financial institutions actually start to enable these transactions? Because it seems like a company like BitInstant, or really almost any of the companies that have popped up over the last couple of years, they're, they're more like stop gaps where they're saying, okay, this is something where the, the legacy banking system doesn't want to engage with the new banking system, so we'll be the bridge, essentially, between them. And then every time they get squished, you know, every time they get pushed out of business or, you know, or uh, pressure is applied, it's because the banking system has decided that they no longer want to deal with this middleman, and they just would rather not have the business at all. I mean, that's what it looks like to me from the outside. Is that an accurate reflection? Indeed, they are bridges. And eventually, I, I think uh, regular financial institutions uh, will be joining the game. Uh, at the moment, what we're seeing is that all of the on-ramps and off-ramps into and out of the Bitcoin economy uh, represent the uh, steepest areas of difficulty or the largest inefficiencies. But if you're an entrepreneur, you look at inefficiency and you see opportunity. Uh, and I think in the end, this is a continuous balance, if you like. People are looking at this and saying, okay, does the, does the reward exceed the risk? Well, not quite yet, not for me. But at some point, the reward does exceed the risk for a certain type of company and they jump in and will fill this market. Uh, these kinds of inefficiencies can't go on forever without someone taking advantage of them. I've heard this described before in the context of the prisoner's dilemma, where where even if as a whole the banking system doesn't want to engage with Bitcoin because it kind of removes their monopoly on, on currency, at the same time, there's an enormous incentive for them to buy in early so that as it continues to appreciate, if it succeeds, they'll stand to gain from that too. And it's the sort of thing where the first one that buys in has the you know the lowest price because none of the other banks are in and then by adding in they essentially are adding demand without adding to supply so i mean is this is this are we just at a point of equilibrium right now where nobody wants to make the first move and then as soon as some major institution makes the first move it's going to start a cascade 
I think there's a deeper problem than that, Adam, quite honestly, and that is that you're assuming that uh, financial services institutions have incentives to innovate, and uh, they don't. <laughs> uh, financial services institutions have no incentives to innovate, and in fact, a large part of uh, our economy has no incentives to innovate because taking uh, existent money flows, uh, tapping into them and leeching off the profit or uh, securitizing again and again and again the same stuff and adding more and more leverage is clearly much more profitable than making real things, innovating or investing in real companies. And and that's the main problem in our economy right now. Part of what we're seeing is a reflection of the fact that the banks are making far more money essentially as rent seekers on money streams and that kills innovation. Yeah, right on. Take that, bankers. In this final segment from episode one, we talk about one of the biggest surface deep problems Bitcoin faced in the early days. Mining is wasting energy, right? So one of the things that we've been hearing a lot lately is uh, uh, regarding the energy inputs of these devices. Obviously, this this particular device that was tested uh, was consuming more energy than promised. And that matters because if you're a miner, you're looking at the ROI of energy in versus Bitcoin out. And, and this, uh, this equation has come under quite a lot of criticism, including by Nobel Prize winner economist Paul Krugman and others regarding the energy consumption of the Bitcoin network. I'm calling BS on that. And uh, quite honestly, I think it's a it's a very shallow argument. Let's look at that in a bit more detail. A lot of the descriptions you hear out there compare the energy consumed in mining with issuing in national currencies. But that's not a fair comparison because mining does a lot more than just mint the coin. It actually ensures the integrity of all of the transactions as well as the integrity of the network against attack, both in the form of injecting transactions that are bogus and in the form of trying to take over the mining pool. So mining is doing a lot more in the Bitcoin economy than just minting. And a more fair comparison would be to compare the energy that goes into Bitcoin mining with the energy that goes into the mint, the paper, the metals for coins, but also the energy that goes into payment networks such as Visa, MasterCard, Discover, Amex, and the dozens of others that exist. The energy that goes into their data centers to do fraud prevention, the energy that goes into the security of their point of sale and merchant systems, and all of the energy that goes into the regular regulatory frameworks that are built around trust that cannot be guaranteed through computation. So it's really an unfair comparison because if you look at it from that perspective, really the energy per volume of transaction in Bitcoin is cheap. Why do you think that this is a common argument that we come up against? I think it's really fear, uncertainty, and doubt being spread by people who don't understand the topic. And just like any technology that introduces rapid change, uh, there, there, there will be people who um, are shocked by that change, are uh, worried by that change, and afraid by that change, and grasp at straws to uh, debunk it. People may believe it because they're not necessarily educated about how the Bitcoin network works, or they're not, it's kind of an unseen thing uh, how much costs actually go into creating the legacy currency system and how much pollution that might create. So maybe education is an issue too. But yeah, I agree with you, Andreas. Fear, uncertainty, and doubt. I'd like to uh, maybe uh, make fewer excuses for the journalist discussions because. 
Ignorance may be excused if you're a layperson and you're actually just discussing this in your living room. But if you're writing a story that that is putting to question the environmental credibility of a currency that's running transactions, I think a modicum of research and perhaps reaching out some people who know what they're talking about would be in order. And, and that's a problem to me. I don't know if you gentlemen were aware of this, but there was a story recently that I found on the Bitcoin Talk forum that there are certain people who have been spokespeople for Bitcoin for quite a while up to this point. And now that there there are some people saying they're too radical and they shouldn't be allowed to be listed on these uh, speaker pages for press. So I think there is even an active kind of effort to suppress certain viewpoints within the Bitcoin community uh, that might be considered too free or (laughs) too radical. If we're presenting Bitcoin to the mainstream media, then I think that there's a lot of fear that people will essentially just be laughed off the stage if they have anything that can be tied to them in a negative way. Uh, The flip side, though, is that I don't really think that's who spokespeople for Bitcoin are talking to. I think people who want to portray themselves as spokespeople should be talking to people who don't know anything about Bitcoin from the perspective of them not knowing anything about Bitcoin and trying to help them see how it can you know, have an impact in their own lives. Because, you know, in money in general is a really abstract concept. Once you start talking about digital cryptocurrencies, then suddenly the abstractness goes through the roof. It seems like it's a mismatch to me of who we're talking to and how a small group of people are assuming that that targeted audience will react. Right. At the same time, because Bitcoin is such a decentralized system, there's nothing really stopping anyone who wants to be a spokesperson but doesn't want to engage through this Bitcoin apparatus where there's a list uh, that are a couple of approved sources. So, I mean, is there anything stopping anyone from just saying, hey, I would be good at this job, press contact me? What happens then? There's nothing stopping anyone. And in fact, uh, even for the people who are on the official list, the bigger issue is there's nothing stopping anyone from uh, taking Bitcoin and projecting all of their own political opinions, uh, desires and expectations onto a currency that's relatively neutral. Taking that and then trying to show how Bitcoin is going to bring on this new world of XYZ, whatever their expectation is. I think that's the other, the flip side of that. Uh, argument and the the danger, which is that really people see Bitcoin the way they want to see Bitcoin. We're now going to jump ahead to episode three, originally released April 30th, 2013, for an early interview on Bitcoin's future, should even the worst types of events befall it. My day job is actually has nothing to do with Bitcoin at all. Um, I actually run a company called Vivation International, um, where we do workshops and seminars, and we teach people empowerment skills and emotional healing skills. However, I have been involved in the technological arena for almost 20 years. My bachelor's degree is in physics, and I was actually uh, hanging out in those digital encrypted currency circles back in the 90s. There was a lot of interesting conversations online. actually met some interesting people in those days. So I kind of got an early insight into what digital currencies are and how they work. And so I've been following this very closely for quite some time. So, Paul, you and I have been talking over uh, emails about the interview that we did with Bradley Jensen on the first episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin and thought that you had some really interesting perspective. One of the things that I've noticed is people are conflating Bitcoin with Bitcoin exchanges and other aspects of the Bitcoin ecology. And most people are forgetting to make that clear distinction. Bitcoin is a protocol. It's decentralized. And there's nothing, for example, stopping me from having a Bitcoin client on my computer and you on your computer. And you and I are just doing this you know, exchanging Bitcoins back and forth. 
when when you talk to Mr. Jansen, he made the point that, you know, look, Vincent's got these guidelines that are going to come down possibly with prosecutions because of the, of the uh, possibility of money laundering and other types of issues. And those are legitimate concerns. You know, I don't see any reason why those exchanges can't be compliant. But what he said, though, uh, he said something very extreme, in my opinion. When and if FinCEN decides to prosecute these exchanges for not being compliant, he said, this is the end of Bitcoin. Not this is the end of Bitcoin exchanges in the United States or this is the end of that Bitcoin exchange. It is the end of Bitcoin itself. And so I thought that was a very, very strong claim. At that point, I was like, well, gee, we need to, you know, I would have asked him, well, how, do you, how can you make that claim? I mean, for example, how does FinCEN regulations apply to the other 190 countries in the world? I mean, granted, the United States does have some pretty strong political influence. The real question is, how does that actually stop Bitcoin itself? And I would have asked him that question. And I think you tried to. He kind of, uh, I guess, um, sort of sidetracked and said, look, this is the, what FinCEN's going to do, and it's going to be the end of Bitcoin. I guess that bothered me because I see that happening so much in the, in all the conversations I've had. You know, the reason why I didn't push him too hard on that issue, because he totally did avoid the question, was because I kind of get what he's saying. Even though FinCEN technically only has jurisdiction in the United States, I think that we all know, you know, you can look at things like drug policy or just in general, policy tends to follow the money. And the United States has the money and gives it out to more people really than anybody else. So therefore, they set a lot of the rules. Do you think that if Bitcoin exchanges were made illegal and the transaction of Bitcoin was illegal in the United States, what do you think would happen? That's what I'm saying. I think that's important to make that nuanced interpretation because to say it's the end of Bitcoin is not actually accurate. It would have been fair to say this could be the end of Bitcoin exchange in the United States. That in turn could have set up a sort of a, a policy domino effect where it would have begun the ending of exchanges in places like Europe, possibly you know England, possibly Japan. But then as you move more and more into the periphery, into the third world, that I think those, those abilities to enforce that becomes less and less. And I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm not saying that that's, you know, oh gosh, this is, you know, Bitcoin's going to do just fine. It's definitely going to hurt Bitcoin, but it's not going to kill it. And that's an important distinction to make. Money tends to go where it can. Capital tends to flee and go where it can. And so with Bitcoin, it's ex obviously extremely disruptive to the existing banking system. There are a lot of people, not necessarily criminals, but there's a lot of people who have a lot of money who have an interest in seeing something like Bitcoin succeed. I mean, there's that recent exposure I think something like $37 trillion of offshore assets. Some of them, of course, were oligarchs and criminals, but most of them were just rich people trying to hide their money. You know, there's definitely this, uh, I guess, this tug of war between sovereign nations trying to collect tax revenue and money trying to escape it. Because here's the thing. If you look at eGold, I, I mean, I went, I didn't do my research before the interview. They were not compliant. They, they were not actually getting people's identity. They weren't going through the trouble of getting IDs and, to, and going through all of the normal procedures that a bank goes through. They didn't do that. And because they didn't do that, they got shut down. And so people are sort of making that comparison. Well, gee, Bitcoin's going to go the same way as eGold. Well, there are two, two different things to say about that. One is eGold was a centralized sort of system, and it was one, more or less one or two companies. So they were a single point of failure. Two, what's keeping these exchanges in the United States from actually complying? It might be expensive, but it's not, not impossible. In other words, I don't think FinCEN is necessarily saying Bitcoin's illegal. They just want there to be a way to track money's going from Bitcoin to cash, cash to Bitcoin, to make sure there's not any sort of illegality happening. But isn't there an inherent conflict here with even the idea that currency, it seems like, if we're talking about value in the world, 
isn't that a zero-sum game where if somebody's winning, it means somebody else is losing? And the current system that we have right now is one where the dollar has most of the value stored in it, and everything else is sort of backed by that. So you can see how, from the perspective of someone or an organization that has the dollar as its, as its core tenant, it would be kind of scary to look at this other system coming up and potentially being a superior product. Because ultimately, that, that's the problem here, is that oh, oh, Bitcoin oh, you're, you're is better than right. money, right? Oh yeah, you're absolutely correct. I mean, let I mean, if we get right down to it, I mean, Bitcoin is very threatening to the ability, for example, of people who control fiat currencies, the Fed and other banks to inflate the currency. Do you think that um, I mean, I just have to think that since governments are made of of people, that has to come into the equation when they're making these decisions. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the bottom line is Bitcoin, I think, is very disruptive. It's disruptive to the current economic regime and the way it's run. Just like, for example, music sharing was disruptive to the existing, you know, music thing. Right. So, so they they are going to. It, I mean, it just makes rational sense that they're going to do whatever they can to stop it or co-opt it. You know, and so so to me, that's 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 a rational conclusion. I've come to that conclusion too. But given the fact that that is their intention or that is their desire and that is a rational sort of response, the next question is, well, what can they actually do? You know, they could attack it legally, which they, you know, they could do. And right now, FinCEN hasn't said they're going to do that. They're, they're just asking the money exchangers to comply. We're speculating. What if they just declare it and out, you know, it's illegal? It's used for money laundering, pornography, uh, terrorism, that kind of thing. And they just go out and flat out out, uh, outlaw it. That is certainly a possibility. And quite frankly, it seems that probably a likely possibility given the nature of Bitcoin. At that point, I don't know what's going to happen. <clears throat> no, it's you get off into the weeds. I totally understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, no, it's, this, it's, this is a big topic. And so, so it's like there's so many different ways to go here. In this particular case, and where I was responding specifically to Mr. Jansen was, he made a very specific claim. If FinCEN goes after prosecutes them based on the way the law is written, which is money laundering and so on, and that they have to be under compliance of FinCEN rules, that is the end of Bitcoin. And I was simply challenging that specific statement. So... If you think that it wouldn't go away, take that same comparison and let's move it to the Facebook MySpace thing. Uh, Facebook didn't kill MySpace, but one could argue that MySpace is not doing very well relative to that relationship now. So I guess, are you implying essentially then that Bitcoin could essentially succeed on some level? It's just, it wouldn't supplant existing currencies. It would simply find its own niche. That's where I've been coming from. I think that Bitcoin is not necessarily a currency. It's not necessarily a commodity. It has, it has properties of both, but it's also unique. As John Matinus says, it's its own asset class. Bitcoin will eventually find its own niche. The question is, what niche is that going to be? Is it going to become a mainstream niche that there'll be a lot of what I call legitimate money going into it, and that legitimate money will in turn have political influence and bring it sort of a legitimacy, the same way as PayPal, and that eventually the rest of the system will catch up and will move forward? Or will it get pushed into the, you know, the, the, the system D economy, into the underground economy, and become sort of a black market thing? I think nobody really knows the answer to that. Bitcoin, it, it won't die. It will, at, the, at the worst, it will go into this sort of fringe underbelly, kind of like anaerobic bacteria got pushed under the water. That might end up being its niche, as sort of this black market thing. It has that, utility that, that, at that level, even. I mean, that's, the, that's kind of right, the interesting right. part about it, is that it's very, very hard for it actually to be destroyed because of its decentralized nature and because it, frankly, has utility, even if it's to that really small minority right. at a very low value. Right. Take Zimbabwe or one of these other small countries where their where their where their currencies went got inflated completely out of proportion. I could easily see. Well, I think it's called M Pesa. It's that mobile minutes 
currency system they're using in Africa. I could easily see Bitcoin sort of getting a good foothold there, and, and not because of its price point with any other fiat currency, but just as a medium of exchange. It's a simple, easy system that where people could sort of do it as a unit of account. And therefore, even if the price is going up and down like crazy, they're not going to really notice because their economy is becoming self-contained. They've found their own sort of localized currency. The, the idea is how do you make a currency that, that regardless of its legality, is unenforceable? I mean, it's, it's, at this point, it can be argued that music sharing, music piracy, is, is essentially unenforceable. They have it on the books, but over 50% of internet traffic is BitTorrent. I think Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever that person or persons were, had to have considered that. It's like, you know, look, this is going to be outlawed immediately. That just to me is a sort of an obvious given. And so when I hear about, oh, they're going to outlaw it, instinctually I'm thinking, well, that may not matter. A lot of it is not about Bitcoin. A lot of it is just about the dollar and the other currencies that are kind of in play. Because again, it's not like Bitcoin is so good that it's horrible. It's Bitcoin is so good that it makes everybody else look horrible. That's exactly right. And I think the other thing, and I think this is the reason I've been sort of a big fan of Bitcoin, the last few years, given the 2008 banking collapse, is thinking, gee, you know, we could all end up in a horrible economic mess. I mean, I remember 2009 was a pretty tough year for a lot of people, me too, in terms of my business. And I could see Bitcoin even though it might be illegal, let's say. So let's say they outlaw it. This is sort of the last desperate attempt to sort of pop up these fiat currencies. At some point, I could see the whole currency thing collapse. I mean, there's a lot of evidence of that now. I mean, the yen's going crazy, the euro, the ECB, the troika, all those people are going crazy. I mean, there's so much stuff going on. The entire Ponzi scheme that is our financial system collapses. Bitcoin's still there. It's this resilient sort of thing in the ecosystem. And I could see everybody starting to use it. If, this, if the, uh, all these banking systems are collapsing, it's not going to really matter what people think about it, whether it's legal or not. People just start using it. I think that's the, that's the area to start thinking about, and, and to, to the degree that it's actually enforceable. I mean, if, they, if they're losing money, if they're having regulatory problems, the question is, how can they enforce it? The type of people that we're talking to with this, it's difficult for them to imagine anything besides the U.S. dollar paradigm. And it's difficult right. for them. You know, I mean, even if you're in a different country, we're still living under the U.S. dollar paradigm as it's kind of a global culture. And it's hard for people to imagine something that's never been. That's the end game. If, if things go the way they look like they're going to go, and if the actors who are in play respond in a way that is logical from their perspective. Do you have a lot of uh, value in Bitcoin knowing that? Or are you just waiting for the crash? Because it seems like if you believe it's going to be banned, then that would be the time to buy. I actually am going long. You know, I purchased Bitcoins a while back. I got those Bitcoins mostly for emotional and philosophical and political reasons. And I'm thinking, you know, this could, I could get rich from this. You know, the, the, if each coin becomes worth $100,000 or $1 million, I'm going to be worth a lot of money. But, but that wasn't the reason I got into it. I got into it like, you know, I believe in this. I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. People have been hearing me push radical decentralization for like half my life. And so I thought, you know, I should go up forward and, just, and, and invest in this because it's a cool idea. And it's been very, very educational. I mean, the amount of money I invested, I've easily gotten my worth back in terms of education, hmm. just in terms of using it and having that investment there, being emotionally invested, philosophically invested, financially invested, has essentially bootstrapped my knowledge and uh, about how these types of things work. I think it was in late February, early March, with the whole Cyprus thing. All of a sudden, it just went off the chart. The, the growth rate really started to change. And I thought to myself, there's a small chance that this is going to be the it. This is going to go crazy, and it's not going to go back. But I said, the more likely chance this is a speculative bubble, and that speculative bubble is going to pop, or something's going to pop. And that's exactly what happened. And I see that still happening. I still see these sort of speculative things going, but it's going to get less and less severe over time. And this is, of course, assuming that there's no FinCEN you know, legal attack going on. 
the other side is that you don't need to store any value in Bitcoin for any amount of time whatsoever in order to to extract the value that it brings from that perspective. And that's always been a very interesting thing from where I sit because it means that the value functionally doesn't matter. If you have an application like Bridgewalker where you can, you know, take money uh, stored in dollars, transmit it into Bitcoins and have it transmitted out on the other side back into dollars again with no sort of latency, then you get all of the advantages of the Bitcoin money transfer and there's probably a small fee associated with it. So you're talking about like BitPay. Is that is that how BitPay does it as well? I think so. I think the way I understand BitPay is that it, it, the idea of it is, hey, look, you can, you can set up yourself as a merchant. You can accept basically cash. It gets translated into Bitcoin. And then that transaction happens at a very low you know, rate. It's big, like 1% or less than 1%. Again, it happens really fast. So you're not having to deal with the price fluctuations of Bitcoin itself. It's being simply used as a means of, of transmission. Using it as a means of transmission as opposed to sitting in it for any length of time where you're then exposed to market movements. I mean, that's kind of the interesting exactly. part is it makes the it makes the price irrelevant. The thing, though, of course, there is that you're because you're going from cash to Bitcoin to cash again, you fall right back under FinCEN regulations. At oh, least yeah, that's no, absolutely. From a regulatory standpoint, it's a mess. If you were going to separate the functionality of Bitcoin from the volatility of Bitcoin price, I think it, it would be very doable from a you know implementation standpoint, whether or not you'd be able to legally comply while doing that is, of course, the question we're talking about. If you can create sort of a Bitcoin ecosystem or a self-contained economy where everybody's just dealing in Bitcoin and it becomes their own unit of account, then then it doesn't matter what's going on. You don't need to exchange it back to dollars. There's no issues with FinCEN, the, the way it's written now. Everybody's paying themselves in Bitcoin. There's, it's never going into dollars or any other currency. I think that you've it, nailed it there. That's what's going to happen if FinCEN uh, winds up doing this, because functionally, yeah, I, they're saying that that's okay. They're saying so long as you never touch another currency with Bitcoin, then technically it's not a currency. So, I mean, by that standard, you're talking about a whole new type of consumer being created. Even though that might have a difficult time getting going in, say, the, the U.S. or in first world countries, I could easily say that getting started in, in third world countries, because it's kind of like that leapfrog issue. They went directly from having no phones to cell phones. Right. You know, right now they're completely locked out of the whole Visa, MasterCard, PayPal thing. Bitcoin is something that, you know, it's open source, they can download it, and they can immediately start using this system. I just read something, I think it was a week or two ago, where one of this NGO guy in Nairobi, Kenya, who started going around to the different tribesmen and saying, hey, have you heard of Bitcoin? They're like, what's that? You know, and they had heard, of course, M-Pesa because they're using their mobile phones, but they hadn't heard of Bitcoin before. And they seemed very enthusiastic about the idea. Hey, everybody, Stephanie here. If you like the sound of my voice on this show, great. That must mean I'm on the right track. I'm a voice actor, and I've voiced numerous projects for major brands in the cryptocurrency world and beyond. If you think my voice could be right for your next explainer video, app, phone greeting, or tutorial, get in touch with me through my website, smvoice.info, or just email me at stephanie at letstalkbitcoin.com. These next two clips come to us from episode five, released on the 7th of March, 2013. The next email, and this one is the long one that has several questions in it, comes to us from listener Rob. Last week, Andreas mentioned how he only keeps a minimal balance on a Bitcoin exchange. That sounds great in theory, but how do you do that if you're a speculator or trader? If I want to buy Bitcoin after it falls in price, I need cash in my account so I have the flexibility to buy at the right moment. Given the delays moving cash into exchange, how do you stay safe while being able to take advantage of opportunities? That's a great question, Adam. Although it is a bit of a contradiction in terms of staying safe and being a speculator in Bitcoin. And, and that's the fundamental problem. It's a risky endeavor. In order to be a successful speculator, you do, in fact, have to keep a balance around. Some of my most successful speculation was simply having cash 
cash in an account so that when the price dipped, for whatever reason, I could jump in and buy at a low price. That was a great strategy, but it exposes you to a lot of risk, especially risk of uh, closure of the exchange, freezing of the accounts or things like that. So I don't really have an answer other than uh, try to find the exchange that you feel is most trustworthy, which is a very difficult question to answer right now and is going to be a continued topic on this show discussing exchanges and the various options. Stephanie, do you trade or are you more of an accumulation style? I mean, because that's basically what I do. I don't really trade. I tried once maybe a year and a half ago and I didn't really feel like I was very good at it. So I decided to just buy and hold when I was going to buy. I do a minimal amount of trading myself, but I do sometimes do a little bit of like Forex style trading into other into and out of other cryptocurrencies. Hmm. And for me, that actually mitigates some of the risk because it's super easy to transfer, you know, bitcoins or Litecoin or whatever into and out of certain exchanges like BTCE or Vercurex. That happens pretty much instantly. You only have to wait like at most maybe 20, 30 minutes for it to confirm. Put the liquidity into the exchange really fast and then pull it out really fast. And that's exactly what I do to expose myself to as little risk as possible. But when I do do buying and selling, I usually do it from other individuals that I know. I've also experimented with mining a little bit and I accept Bitcoins for my services and as uh, donations for the podcasting that I do. When you want to speculatively buy Bitcoins, but you don't want to hold it in cash because of that concern, instead you hold it in an alternative cryptocurrency, something like Litecoin, that doesn't necessarily correspond to Bitcoin's price movement, so it'll probably stay relatively stable, you know, relatively, versus what, what, what you think Bitcoin will do. Is that right? I more just watch uh, exchange rates between certain other coins like Bitcoins and Litecoins or, you know, PP coins or Terra coins or whatever. We'll exchange, for instance, Litecoins to Bitcoins or something like that when I see a good exchange rate. That to me is like the level of risk that I'm comfortable with. It's a little bit of like fun. You know, you can play with it and speculate without using cash or without taking uh, like huge risks because you don't have to keep the coins in the exchange. Where do you trade the altcoin chains? Because I know that Mt. Gox doesn't support any yet, right? Yeah, I use BTCE and Vercurex. Sometimes there'll be quite a spread between those two websites, which is kind of interesting. So you can sometimes have arbitrage opportunities on there. But you you have to watch it kind of closely. And it's not always something I have time to do or I'm willing to do. So I've only done a little bit of that, but it can be interesting to play with. In this next clip, we talk about the impact of developers on the code of a cryptocurrency. By the way, impact is the magic word for this episode. That's spelled I-M-P-A-C-T. Impact. Visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app and enter it for your share of the listener rewards. The last day to redeem this word is March 14th. In a prior life, I worked at a hedge fund doing IT, and I got to watch a lot of things from the inside. One of the most fascinating things I saw was just before the chancellor, sorry, of the exchequer, which is the equivalent of the Federal Reserve Board here in England, and the chancellor of the exchequer would come out and announce new interest rates. Well, they had a panel of experts watching the video feed with dials in front of them to indicate to the traders buy or sell. And what they were looking for was slight inflections in the eyebrows so or slight movements of the head or posture or whatever so that they could actually make a judgment as to whether the rates were going up or down before the first word came out of that person's mouth. <laughs> well, developers, that's the level of scrutiny you're going to get, whether you like it or not. 
Better get used to every word you say being parsed a hundred ways from Saturday just because 1.7 billion dollar economy and growing. I guess that's a good sign because people are being skeptical. They care about Bitcoin and they're going to do what it takes to make sure everything is scrutinized and they're not just going to trust that everybody has their best interests at heart, especially when there's a lot of money at stake. So I think that's just an indicator of a passionate community and a smart community that can understand the issue enough to care about it and is willing to do something about it. And can do something about it. I mean, that's the exciting thing. Because when Bernanke comes out and says the interest rate is ah, well, the interest rate is blah. And you can't fork the country. <laughs> right? That would be it great would be if great you could. if you could. I would be putting in a pull request right now. <laughs> I have some changes in mind. I'm sure we all do. And that's, that's the whole point, right? It's the power. We have voice here. We have power. Uh, and not just radio hosts. I'm, I mean, every single user of Bitcoin has an opinion and has the ability to go in and suggest changes to the code and, and even fork the whole thing. So uh, this is a very different situation in, in many ways because the developers operate only at the pleasure of the consensus community. And so we do have a lot more accountability than we may feel at times. And that's a great thing. Do you feel like this matters more now than it did, say, six months ago? Because I've definitely noticed that the pitch of things has really gone up. You know, these little changes, they're smaller and smaller changes. And even when they're good changes, they're still getting all kinds of negative attention just because, you know, they're changes. <laughs> You know, things have changed because the economy has grown, because a lot of outsiders who uh, don't necessarily do Bitcoin for the ideology, for the early adopter status, for whatever reasons all of us came in at an earlier time, uh, more and more people are doing this because it's a great utility, a great way to participate in a new economy. And these people will judge uh, Bitcoin and the changes that are made purely on objective criteria that affect their wallet. So yeah, there's a lot more scrutiny now. The final selection for today's show comes to us from episode four, originally published on the 3rd of March, 2013. If you're very new to Bitcoin, Mt. Gox might be an albatross you never experienced, but in the early days, it was critically important. Though it took years for Gox to actually collapse, even in those early episodes, there are hints of what would come. So the big news of the week, CoinLab, is suing Mt. Gox for between 50 million and 75 million US. Is anybody surprised that perhaps Mt. Gox fell down and didn't do what they said they would do or were supposed to do? Well, reading through the complaint, actually, it looked like they were supposed to hand over. Uh, one of the things that uh, was really emphasized in the contract between Mt. Gox and CoinLab was that there was concern on CoinLab's side of what would happen to CoinLab's ability to perform services if Mt. Gox, for whatever reason, was no longer able to provide them. And so Mt. Gox was supposed to hand over uh, all of the YubiKeys, all of the... Basically, they were supposed to make all of the customers who would be going through CoinLab into CoinLab customers in every sense of the word, including access to the entire system, basically. Beyond that, they were supposed to provide a liquidity fund so that CoinLab could have, you know, a buffer to float with. Again, since they're not providing the market services, they're just using Mt. Gox's marketing services. So, I mean, there, there are a whole variety of issues where it just appears from this complaint, you know, and because CoinLab isn't operating right now in the way that they said that they would be operating, that Mt. Gox just really failed to deliver in a number of these circumstances. Andreas, do you think that something like this can actually help the situation? Or do we just think that this is a continuation of that amateur hour thing we've been seeing coming out of Mt. Gox for a couple of weeks now? 
Uh, yeah, I think the uh, the three year old amateur hour show that's been going on at Mount Gox it, it sh- should concern everyone in in, in the Bitcoin uh, environment because this is not just a problem of uh, technology that can only do about thirty trades per second apparently, or the uh, business practices, PR practices, and other things going on. It's the whole bundle. My account, by the way, is on MTGOX, so I have a personal account there just in a matter of disclosure. I got a message saying that my account would be transitioned here to be located with Silicon Valley Bank. Now, to me, that's a huge advantage. Uh, being able to attach it to a U.S. banking institution that can have direct access to my accounts, my other U.S. accounts protected by FDIC, etc., etc., all of those are pluses. And I don't particularly mind uh, being in a regulated environment because I am effectively uh, you know i have to pay taxes i have to follow the anti-money laundering rules whether i trade with mtgox in japan or or kernel up here in the us the only difference is i would actually get some protection so as a customer i would hope that the eventual outcome of this is that they move forward on the agreement it seems to me that understanding how how these types of federal civil lawsuits work uh, that is the goal. Uh, this is not about making that punitive. It simply doesn't work that way. Does anybody think that CoinLab could start their own competing exchange? Like, are they just so sick of this partnership that maybe they'll strike out on their own? The prerequisite to that, Stephanie, in fact, if you look at the contract and the complaint, you'll see the part of the reason CoinLab can't do that is because that's what they gave up in this quid pro quo. So, in order for them to get the deal with MTGOX, they've basically agreed not to do exactly that. Either way, this is going to resolve that question. Either MTGOX will put up or the deal is invalid, void. There'll be some damages some way, most likely not 50 million, but there'll be some damages if it, if it ends up voiding the deal. But what that also does once that deal is voided, it allows CoinLab to go out and build their own exchange without getting sued for by MTGOX for breaking the exclusivity deal. Because that exclusivity deal actually went both ways. On the one hand, you know, people have been talking about that $50 million figure as though it only applies to Mt. Gox, but it's only applying to Mt. Gox because Mt. Gox appears to be the one that broke the terms of the contract. If CoinLab had opened a competing exchange, then they also would have violated that clause and would have been on the hook for that $50 million for exactly the same reasons Mt. Gox is now, not fulfilling the terms of their contract. I have a kind of, a, <laughs> we've been talking about this off air, but I figure it's just time to do it. Does anybody here think that Mt. Gox is like a honeypot? Because I, I don't understand why they're still operating, given uh, their just absolute <laughs> continued record of failure with all the exchanges that are closing down around the world for random reasons. Why is it that Mt. Gox is never is never being touched by the regulatory side? You know, they get hit by hackers every once in a while. But I mean, that's that's totally normal. And yet they seem to be immune from any sort of actually outside regulatory interference. Are there any other exchanges in Japan that we know of that are able to operate because it's this great environment to be an exchange in or is Mt. Gox special? Not too sure about that, Adam. I do want to point out that from a legal perspective, I would expect within the next week or two, if this actually does move forward the way it's moving forward, we're going to see a countersuit from MTGOX against CoinLab for $50 million. That's usually how this discussion starts. I'm suing you, fine, I'll sue you back. And then they sit down and have a discussion about who dismisses first under what circumstances. So the countersuit is coming. Don't assume that the $50 million only goes one way. Uh, We're going to see it in court too. 
That's my prediction. Now, on the topic of uh, whether Japan's a good environment, who knows? I mean, I think it's pretty arbitrary. It's just a matter of who gets attention and when. If the Japanese government turned their spotlight onto, I imagine this is the big eye of Sauron, you know, the the regulatory spotlight turns around and starts looking at empty gox, well, you know, they could be shot in a day, just as easily as the US exchange, probably more easily. From what I understand of the uh, Japanese justice system, they only move when they're sure to get convictions and they get them every time. There's no traditional due process and assumption of innocence in the Japanese justice system, just so you know. So as someone who has an account in Mt. Gox, you know, and that's the case with me too, I've had an account there from time to time, doesn't that make you a little nervous? I have always uh, been of the opinion that you never store money long-term in any of these accounts. So any money that's not in my own controlled Bitcoin wallet, I assume can disappear at any time, whether that's dollars or Bitcoin. So I put money into the exchanges, trade it and take it out when I'm no longer trading. And I don't leave much in there. And I think that would be a sensible approach for anyone. When these exchanges go down, they take your money with them. And there's no reason why the fact that this one's been up for three years is any indication that it's going to be up tomorrow. I think it's amazing that they've lasted this long. I mean, I, they sort of had an advantage, I guess, of being first to market and getting a lot of traction and a lot of popularity. But at this point, almost everyone agrees that they are not serving the needs of their customers. They're not even doing a particularly competent job at what they're trying to do. So it's high time for another exchange. People have been saying this for a while. There's going to be some other things that pop up but they keep getting whacked down by these regulations. And maybe being in Japan is the key, I'm not sure, but I'm really surprised that Mt. Gox is still around and so popular. Well, it seems like the the main business here is to figure out the regulations, which if you look at it from that perspective, what is the value in the Empty Gox CoinLab agreement? CoinLab's already figured out the regulations. They've probably put down a pretty serious amount of money against that. They are VC funded and they're FinCEN approved and got to deal with the bank. Empty Gox brings to the table a trading engine that can do about, what is it, 30 transactions per second, which is about 10,000 times slower than any decent exchange. So maybe if we look at this lawsuit, we have to look at it from the perspective of CoinLab getting a out of this contract in order to build their own exchange because over the last couple of months, while they were doing the transition, Antigox lost a lot of reputation, a lot of credibility in the market, and other exchange engines are popping up. Maybe they figure it's not worth it anymore. We're just going to have to kind of stay on this topic and uh, see where it goes. Looking forward to hearing back from Mt. Gox because, I mean, really the thing that we're missing in this analysis is their side of the story. And it would be fantastic if we could have that because, I mean, I, I I just can't imagine it doesn't seem like it makes any sense to enter into these agreements or to say you're going to do things or to just underperform on such a regular basis unless like there's no other option but to do that. And I just can't imagine that being the case, given how much of the market of Bitcoin they've captured. So I, I really want to talk to somebody from Mt. Gox and try and figure out what is going on. Why are these things happening? Why is this a normal thing? Yeah, their official statement again left a lot to be desired. They they really need to improve the PR. The official Everything statement is desired. we're not gonna Yeah, we're not gonna comment on these pending legal things because, you know, we just got this and we just saw this. Well, um that's not a very good answer. Uh, and they could have done better even in the first press release from that. I think CoinLab is doing the PR war, at least on this lawsuit, a lot better than Empty Gox. 
Well, and beyond that, though, I mean, it's not like they didn't know about this. You know, like you said, this is not a step that is taken, you know, just because, hey, it's the most convenient thing to do. This is something that you do after you've tried to fix the problem over and over and over again. And it looks like you're at a point where it's not going to get fixed unless something drastic happens. Well, the, actually, the, the funny thing is they found out about this when a CNET uh, journalist called them uh, for comment. <laughs> and um, the I, I don't remember the name of the uh, CEO of uh, MT Gox. Uh, responded to the journalist that uh, his call was the first time he'd heard of it. Wow. <laughs> so the press got hold of this before the CEO, which, you know, that's a whole other uh, competence problem. But, you know, overall, I'll go with the rule of thumb. Never tribute to malice. What can be explained by incompetence? And with that, I think we've actually run out of time for this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Thanks again for joining me, guys, Andreas and Stephanie. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to episode 193 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's episode was provided by Stephanie Murphy, Andreas M. Antonopoulos, Paul Hughes, and Adam B. Levine. Music for today's show was provided by Jared Rubens. I, Stephanie Murphy, provided the announcements, and this episode was curated by listeners Devin, Thomas, David, Daniel, and Rob. Today's episode was edited and assembled by Adam B. Levine and Devin Weller. See you next time.